you have your Bibles, turn with me to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 1. Do you remember the last time that life pulled the rug out from under your feet? Do you remember the last time when in your life, life tumbled in? Do you remember the last time when you had a, an experience that was so disconcerting and so unsettling that you may have said something in a prayer like this, God, how can this be happening to me? If you've ever had an experience like that, and some of you are going through that very experience right now. Some of you are going through it right now, and you have been going through it for some time. But if that's you, then the book of Revelation is for you. Because this book was written by a man in trouble to people in trouble. It was written by a man in prison to people who were going through the most intense struggle of their lives. And they were asking questions. And he wrote to them to give them hope. You see, God is in the hope-giving business. He knows we're in trouble a lot of the time. He knows that we are prone to get in trouble. Sometimes it is of our own doing. Sometimes it is a, a trouble that we had nothing to do with. It found us. He knows. The psalmist said that God knows that we are but dust. You see, God knows us. And he doesn't want to leave us without any help whatsoever. He wants to give us hope in this troubled life. But it will be a difficult hope. The book of Revelation is a letter from a man in trouble to some people in trouble to give them hope, but the hope that he offers them is difficult hope. You see, that's not what we normally think of hope. We think of hope as going to be an easing out of trouble, an easy hope. But the Revelation the book of Revelation does not know any such thing as an easy hope. It's only difficult hope. But ladies and gentlemen, difficult hope is better than no hope. So I want you to look with me to the book of Revelation chapter 1. I'll begin reading with verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter, verses 4 through 20 of Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who owes us, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a, in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation is a book that has, has garnered a lot of curiosity over the course of, of Christian history, probably more so than any other book of the Bible. Revelation has garnered curiosity. People have, have become obsessed with it, some people. They, they only read it sometimes because they want to know what God is saying in the book of Revelation. It is a, a book of symbols and a book of mysteries. It, it eludes uh, even some of the greatest scholars. And yet it's a book that I believe is, is very simple in what God is really trying to say to us. But like any other book of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in order to understand what is being said there, we need to know something about the history that gave birth to the inspiration of the book of Revelation. We need to know something about the historical background. For instance, we need to know something about the author of the uh, book of the Revelation. Some people say that the author of Revelation is John the Apostle. Some people say that it's some other John. We do know because the writer says this of himself. He says his name is John. That we know for sure. We also know for sure that this John was a Christian. We know that for sure from what he tells us. 
We also know that this person, John, was in prison. It was kind of like an, an island prison, something like San Quentin. It was on the island of Patmos, out in the middle of the sea, between the country of Italy and the country of Turkey. And this person, John, was in prison for one reason, because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. Now, whether this was John the Apostle or somebody else really is not important. He, it's, not important it's, it's not even important enough that he told us he was John the Apostle. He just says, I'm John, and I'm in trouble. And then we need to know not only something about the author, but we need to know something about the, uh, the recipients, the people to whom he is writing. He's writing to the members of seven congregations, seven churches. They are in the Roman province of Asia, of what is now Turkey, and he begins writing to them. If, if you go over into chapters 2 and 3, you'll find that there are seven churches, one to each of these seven uh, seven letters, each one each to these seven churches, and he writes to them in the order that you would come to them on the Roman expressway, the Roman highway. If you were traveling that uh, Roman highway, if you were a, a, a delivering mail, if you were a, post, a postman or a, a postperson delivering mail on the Roman highway, you'd come first to Ephesus. And, and as those letters, those cities are mentioned in the order in chapters 2 and 3, that's the, the the order in which you would find them. And they were in trouble because they were Christian. The Roman Empire, uh, it was, it was uh, a time when the Roman Empire was not very congenial toward Christians. They were not happy with Christians. And they were persecuting Christians. The, it, the time was somewhere around 90 to 100 A.D. So we're talking about the last decade of the first century. The emperor was a man by the name of Domitian, and he believed that he himself was God. And he insisted, demanded, that everybody throughout the Roman Empire at different times during the day bow down and worship him and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar was another word for the Roman emperor. And so here you have Domitian believing he's God, insisting that people worship him, and you have Christians who say, no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And we will not fall down and worship Domitian. We will not worship Caesar. We will not worship any other man. And so as a result of them not bowing down to worship the emperor, they were being, some of them, thrown in prison like John. Some were being uh, exiled, run out of their homes, their businesses confiscated from them. Their possessions confiscated from them. Some of them were having to live in caves on the outskirts of the city of Rome. Some of them had gone underground and were living in those underground caves where so many graves were. Can you imagine living in a, in a cave where the only friend you have every single day and night is dead people? Other people were uh, being bankrupted. And they were going through all kinds of trials. This was not supposed, in their opinion, this was not supposed to happen to Christians. And so John, who's in trouble, is writing to these people who are in trouble. And his, his purpose is to give them hope. They needed to know that it wasn't the Roman Empire who was in control. And it wasn't the Emperor Domitian who was in control. They needed to know that God was in control. That God was still on the throne. And so John is writing to let them know 
that their, their lives, their future is in God's hands. Now, these people were asking questions. Some people say today, they say, we shouldn't be asking questions. If something bad happens to you, you shouldn't be asking why is this happening to you? Some people don't say, don't ever ask questions. Well, the Bible disagrees with that. Some people say, well, you can ask questions, but, but when it comes to asking why is this happening, instead of saying why is this happening, we should ask why shouldn't it be happening? I've heard people say that. It doesn't really minister to anybody very much. Others people say, instead of saying why is this happening, we should say, why do bad things not happen to us? Or we should say, if we're going to ask why is a bad thing happening to us, we should also ask why are good things happening to us when good things happen to us. But again, while that may be true, it doesn't really minister to people much. Not only that, the Bible does not support either of those stances. The Bible shows a God who's okay with the questions. And they're asking questions. The first question they're asking is, why is this happening? Why is this happening to us? Some people are dying and not being delivered. Some people run out of their homes. They're not dead, but some of them almost wish that they were. They're going through the worst possible struggles of their lives, and they're asking, why is this happening? That's the meaning question, the purpose question. I heard in an interview with a fellow uh, over in Walton County the other day. He was, he was a fellow who lays tile for a living, and up until about two years ago, he had more work than he could do. And he could pretty much charge anything he wanted to, and the demand would still be there. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of that prosperity that he had, the economic crisis came, and he went from having too much work to do to half the days of the week having nothing to do. He went from pretty much if he wanted something, he could go buy it. If his kids wanted something, he could go buy it. If they wanted to go out and eat, they could go out and eat. If they wanted to go to a movie, they could go and watch a movie anytime they wanted to. It didn't really matter. To all of a sudden, they had to start leaving off the movies, start eating more sandwiches at home. And it even got to the point where he had to decide, do we drop the cable or do we drop the cell phones? You see, what's amazing to me today is that there, there will be people who before they'll drop their cable and cell phone, they'll come wanting the church to subsidize what they're doing. And he said, I ask questions every day. He said, one of the questions is, why is this happening to me? And then his second question was, when will it end? Why is this happening? Now, let me tell you this. Uh, sometimes when you ask that question, why is this happening, God will answer it. And sometimes he won't. For instance, John was asking this question, why is this happening? And God answered that question. In fact, we know that because of what John says in verse 9. He says, I, John, your companion in suffering, I was on the Isle of Patmos. Why? Because I was a witness for the Lord. In other words, he knew why he was there. These people were asking the same question. Why is this happening? Sometimes God will let you know when you ask, but sometimes he won't. He's not obligated to, you know. Job, 41 chapters of Job. You remember Job? He lost all 10 of his kids. He lost most of his animals, uh, and he had tens of thousands of them. He lost uh, most of his employees. He lost uh, uh, his health. Although he, he, was, his, he still had his wife, and they were married, their relationship deteriorated. So most of what he had, he lost. 
from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 39, he's asking why, 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 while he's fighting with his friends who say, well, the reason is you're a sinner. And Job says, look, I haven't done anything to deserve what's happening to me, which God agreed with. But God wouldn't speak to him. From chapter 3 all the way to chapter 39, God did not answer the question. When God finally did speak up, he never answered the question. Sometimes you can ask why, but God won't answer it. We leave the book of Job without Job knowing the why behind what happened to him. Why is this happening? There's a second question the people John was writing to was asking, that is, what is going to happen to us? Now, why is this happening is the meaning question, the purpose question. What is going to happen to us is the future question. That's what a lot of people in this economic crisis are asking. Listen, my, my job has gone down the tubes. My salary has gone down the tubes. The, my, my standard of living has gone down the tubes. What is about to happen? Some people who've gone through sickness, who've been diagnosed with a terminal disease, you're wondering, what is about to happen? Will I go through treatment or will I not go through treatment? Or if you've lost a loved one recently or even in the not too distant past and you're still coping with every single day wanting to know what does my future consist of? What is going to happen? These people said, said, John, why is this happening to us? And they said, John, what is going to happen to us? In chapter 1, John answered the why question as far as what he knew. He says, well, I know that, that what is happening to me is happening because of my witness for Christ. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Jimmy. Uh, what I'm going through is not, is not because of my witness for Christ. If, if you have a sickness, it's not because, you say, as far as I can tell, it's not because of my witness. If you have had a death in your family, it's not because of your witness. Or if you've lost your job, it is probably not because of your witness. So you say, well, what John says doesn't really apply to me. I want you to get this. The struggle that you may go through in your life may not be because you have been a faithful witness for Jesus. It may or may not. But I will guarantee you this. Even though it may have nothing to do with your witness, it has everything to do with God. If you're going through a struggle, the purpose behind your struggle is a God purpose. It may not be because you've sinned, but it will always have something to do with God. God has either done this to you, or he has allowed it to happen to you. That's not, being, that's not discrediting God or discounting God. It's, it's the simple fact that when, God, when, when, when trouble happens in your life, God is doing something. We will not always understand the details. In fact, most of the time we will not. But the fact is, he's doing something. Job never understood why, but you and I know from reading the background that it had everything to do with God. John knew why, and he knew that his Reason had everything to do with God. What is going to happen? Well, I've lost my job. What is going to happen? Well, I've got a bad diagnosis. What is going to happen? My child hasn't been home in four days. I don't know where he is. What's going to happen? My kid's about to go to college. And I've used up most of my savings just to pay the mortgage for the past year and a half. What's going to happen? 
And then the third question they were asking was, where is God in all this? Now, I want you to get this. John answers the first question, why is this happening? It's a God purpose, a God reason. He does not immediately, in fact, in chapter 1, he doesn't answer at all the question, what is going to happen, the future, que the future question. Now, he will answer it, but he doesn't start answering it until somewhere about chapter 6. But he answers the first and third questions in chapter 1, especially the question, where is God in all of this? If you look at uh, beginning with verse number 10, he says some wonderful things about where God is in this thing. He says this, he said, I was on the, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, I heard behind me a loud voice with a trumpet, a like a trumpet. And it said, write on a scroll what you see, send it to the churches. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, very important, I want you to get this. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches to whom John is writing, okay? So if I say, who are the lampstands, you're to say, they are the churches. So who are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands and, verse 13, very important, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He's talking about Jesus here. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. That's royalty. A golden sash about his chest. That's royalty, kingship. His head and hair were white like wool. Now, that doesn't look like any of the pictures we've ever seen of Jesus. It, it doesn't sound uh, like the pictures we see of him in the Gospels. This was not meant to be literally taken. The white hair was a symbol of wisdom. And so here you have a picture of Jesus like a son of man, and he has a kingly robe with a golden sash, and he has white hair, which denotes wisdom, and it says, and his eyes were a blazing fire. Now, get a picture of that. A kingly robe with a sash, white hair of wisdom, eyes that were a blaze of fire, which means that he could see everything. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Imagine running across somebody who's wearing metal shoes. Metal shoes. How many of you have ever had somebody to step on your toes before? I mean literally, not preacher-wise. I mean literally. <laughs> You've had someone who accidentally stepped on your toes. What if they stepped on your toes with metal? It, de it designates power. He's walking in power. So he has uh, uh, shoes like bronze. And the Bible says here that his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth he had a double-edged sword which we know from other places in the bible was the very word of god and his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance reminds you of moses when he came down from mount sinai after being with god for 40 days and 40 nights and his face glowed he comes jesus this son of man comes directly from the presence of god the father But I want you to notice where he was. He was walking 
in the midst of the golden lampstands. Who are the golden lampstands? He was walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. You see, when you and I are in a struggle, I mean the most intense struggle of our lives, one of the thoughts that may cross our minds is, where is God in this? We don't see God. Has God left me? Has God forsaken me? And John says, look, I see God. I see where he is, and he is near you. He's with you. He's walking in your midst. It was important that they hear that. Because what what he has pictured Jesus as being is a king, not the Romans, but Jesus. As all-wise, not the Romans, but Jesus. As all-powerful, not the Romans, but Jesus. As all-seeing, not the Romans, but Jesus. Jesus is the one. What is John saying? Jesus is the one who's in control. It may feel like he's not. It may look like he's not. You may think that he's not. But there has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, when God is not in control of your situation. I don't understand everything that happens in our world. Since the first of the year, there have been, around the world, 20 earthquakes of a Richter scale 6.0 or higher. 20. They have claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. Do I understand that? No, I don't understand that at all. Do I believe that God is in control? I do believe he's in control. Yes, I do. There were 40 earthquakes yesterday alone of a Richter scale of 2 or higher. Yesterday. In the world. How do you explain that? I don't try to. I can't. I can't. All I know is this. I rest upon what I know to be true, and that is what I believe to be true, and that is that God is in control of my life. Now, there are three things that I believe that we can glean from this passage that every person needs, every struggler needs, every struggling person, which may be you. First of all, every person needs a God who cares enough and who is powerful enough to do something about his or her situation. When you have experienced life tumbling in, the first thing that you need more than anything else, you need to know that we serve a God who cares and Jesus cares. He was there in the midst and who is powerful enough to do what you need done in your situation. And that whole vision of Jesus that John gives us in the latter part of chapter 1 tells us that he cares because he's there and that he's powerful enough to do what needs to be done. You and I may not understand what needs to be done, but God does. He knows exactly how to meet our needs. He knows exactly what we are in need of. And that's what we need. Every person needs a a God who cares enough and who is powerful enough to take care of the situation we're in. Revelation says Jesus is that person. Now the second need that everybody has, every person needs a friend who understands. The first thing we need is a God who can and a God who cares. But the second thing we need are people who understand what we're going through. And John said this, 
He said in verse 9, he says, I, John, your companion and fellow sufferer in the kingdom work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John didn't say, I know where you are. He didn't say that. John was smarter than that. Some people say that. They're not very smart. You run into people, they come to you, how are you doing? Well, not too good. Well, what's happening? You tell them, oh, I, I understand all about it. No, you don't. You don't. I don't. Even if I have experienced something remotely similar to what you've experienced, I don't know exactly where you are because I'm not you. You're not them. But if you have experienced trouble, if you have experienced trial, if you know what it's like to, for life to, to jerk the rug out from under you, you are qualified to help somebody. You're not an expert, but you're a helper. You can come along beside them. Everybody needs somebody who understands not to give advice, not to give their expertise. Listen, what did Job need more than anything? Job needed somebody just to come along and be there. The seven greatest days of ministry outside the crucifixion and resurrection that ever happened in the Bible happened during those seven days when Job's three friends came over there, sat down, and said nothing. They just sat there with him. Everybody needs a friend who cares. And third, everybody needs the assurance that no matter what happens, everything will be all right. Isn't that what we really need? You've lost your job or part of your salary or things are not as good financially as they used to be. Is, isn't really what you need to know? You need to be assured that it's going to be okay. Isn't it really? If, if you, you, your marriage has, is suffering or maybe you, you've experienced divorce, don't you need to know? Don't you need to know that it's going to be okay? You're going to make it. God will see you through. Don't you want to know that? If you've been sick, I mean with something more serious than just a little sniffle or two. Don't you want to know that God's going to see you through, that everything's going to be okay? If you've lost a mate or a child or your parents recently, don't you want to know that everything's going to be okay? Don't you want to know it? Listen. Everybody needs a God who can and who cares, and John says, that's Jesus. John said, everybody needs a friend who cares and is there to help. And John says, I'll offer that, I'll offer that. Will you offer that? And John says, everybody needs to know that ultimately, no matter what you go through, everything's going to turn out okay in the end. That's going to be difficult. Things are going to get worse before they get better in some cases. That was the case with these folks. And that's what he tells them in the book of Revelation. It's going to get worse, but it will get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. You see, throughout the Bible, God has been pretty much saying the same things, ladies and gentlemen. He said it back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote to people who were in captivity in Babylon. You remember that? They were in captivity in Babylon. They were wondering, why is this happening? What is going to happen? Where is God? We thought God wouldn't let this happen to us. They were asking the exact same questions. And, and when Jeremiah wrote to them, he quotes God. God saying in, in Jeremiah 29, 11, he says this. He says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a, a, a future and a hope. God is in the hope-giving business. Why didn't, why didn't John answer the question, what is about to happen to us? Because even though it's important, it's not nearly as important as knowing that God is here and that God is powerful and that God will see you through whatever you're going through. So let me just begin this series by asking this question. Where is your hope? Does your hope lie in your salary? Does your hope lie in your job? Does your hope lie in your health? Does your hope lie in your charisma or your gifts or your talents? Does your hope lie in your relationship with your spouse? Well, what if all of that falls away? Then where is your hope? You see, John is writing to these people and he's saying, anchor your hope in that which will still be here when everything else goes away. Anchor your hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Where is your hope? If your hope is in Christ, yeah, your life may fall apart, but, but he will hold you steadfast if you rely on him. So where's your hope? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here in this building who've never received you as Savior. They have no hope because they have not given their lives to you. Lord, I pray for, for someone to move out from where they're sitting or standing and come and invite you to be their Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray for people who are saved, but their faith has been rattled. Their cage has been shaken. Crisis has become an unwelcome visitor where they live. And they're struggling, Lord, sometimes slipping and stumbling and falling. And I pray, Lord, for strength for them. Lord, help us all to look to you and hold to you and not give up because you haven't given up. Lord, help us to commit ourselves to remembering that you are in the hope-giving business. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.